I think it would be useful for us to begin to, to open some reflection upon this next limb or this next treasure. The word in Pali is virya. There's a lot of different nuances to this word virya. It describes um, appropriate or attuned effort. It's often translated as being courage or fearlessness. Sometimes virya is about dedication and a willingness to sustain dedication. But I think virya also has these qualities of forbearance, forbearance, you know, not endurance, but forbearance, you know, that, that resourced capacity to, to turn towards dukkha, to turn towards vulnerability rather than fleeing. It also holds within it a sense of inspiration and passion. You know, the word that's used very often in the, in the, in the discourses is this word ardency that we would probably more associate, you know, with, with partnering with someone or falling in love, you know, this sense of energized dedication. And it very much just is included in this landscape of virya. Sometimes it's called the kind of, yeah, a, a real passion for awakening. A real passion. It's not about lukewarm, you know, about, oh, yeah, I'll be mindful when I feel good, you know, when I feel like it, you know, another moment I don't think so, you know, or maybe I'll, you know, see what's going on here, you know, but over there, I think I'll just avoid it, you know. So there's this energized sense to Viria, which is really important. And it, it's, you know, this is not necessarily something so dramatic, you know. I don't think it has to be dramatic, you know. And when I think of people turning up for eight-week courses or I think of people turning up for retreats, you know, Listening to people, you know, people speak about a lifetime of avoiding or running away or denying or dissociating from dukkha, from vulnerability, you know, and the fact of someone showing up and being willing to add, try and understand what's going on in their lives, their minds, their heart, when it's often painful to do so when it often can be quite painful to do so. This is actually virya. You know, aren't you amazed when somebody comes back in week two? You know, uh, you know, even though they've spent all of week one sleeping, you know, and they come back in week two, they're not coming back for another dose, another nap, you know. They're coming back because there's something that is really motivating. You know, I'm often amazed that people make it past day three in a retreat. I think, well, you're still here. Isn't that something? You know, not that everybody's out there in excruciating torment or pain. They might actually be having a lovely time. But some people are really going through that landscape of the hindrances and the veiling factors, you know, and, the, you know, the, they wonder what they're doing when they're spending their whole day, you know, kind of either dissociated and asleep or restless or dull or doubting. They come, oh, my gosh, you know, another sitting, another walking, you know, of, you know, you know meeting the, the hindrance. This is this is courage. This is virya. This is what it looks like. 
you know, I think courage is much more about what we do rather than what we feel, you know. And it's often just the, the small moments of not turning away when in the past we may have more habitually turned away or dissociated or, you know, just opened the fridge in order to get rid of that moment of discontent. There's something about the, the courage of just being willing to show up for this, being willing to step out of the, the habitual and the familiar and the known. Chris. And let's, let's take the Buddha's invitation to be curious, deeply curious about what gives rise to this quality of energy or courage or dedication. And we can see, can't we, how it flows from the curiosity itself so often. There is a way in which these limbs or these factors kind of condition each other. There's a, sometimes they're presented as a kind of sequence, each supporting the next. And we know the experience of being really interested in something, don't we? Maybe, maybe a book, maybe you know, a hobby we have, maybe a relationship we're interested in, maybe a new job. Uh, and so much energy comes from that curiosity you know, uh, and that interest. And we can see that, in a sense, this, this factor of investigating Dhamma Vichaya, this investigating Dhammas, also kind of evokes a sense of interest and a sense of possibility. And it's from the sense of possibility so often that energy flows. And I think that's why it's important to remember that meaning Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of the Dharma, capital D, because if Dharma points to anything, it points to possibility. You know, the most radical and meaningful and profound possibilities that are available to, for us as humans. And one, one can sense, can't one, in people doing eight-week courses, often there is a sense of inspiration that comes from you know, even from week one's, you know, raisin and body scans, because there's the possibility of a different way of relating to my experience with, you know, presence as opposed to absence, with kindness as opposed to aversion, with embodiment as opposed to just repeat rumination. And there's something, I think, as a, as a mindfulness teacher about you know, really encouraging that sense of possibility, really nurturing it, really validating it. You know, in, if people reflect back on their experience of doing the body scan in week one, and for some of them, there will have been moments of insight or moments of enjoyment or moments of, of, of peace. And really to kind of celebrate that validates the possibility, which is, you know, what, eight-week courses point to too and there can be in viria there can be a certain you know wise excitement you know there's a sense of okay we don't just have to be lifetime prisoners of our patterns and this can be news 
this is this is news and this is i think partly explains the extraordinary growth of interest in mindfulness in our society over recent years the, the sense that so many people find possibilities through mindfulness that they weren't able to access before and so really to have that that you know the curiosity factor that is present in mindfulness that is integral to the factor of investigation to have a sense of how that unlocks and opens up a sense of energy a sense of commitment you know a sense of of the willingness to you know have forbearance or patience with doing 14 body scans or 12 body scans or however many people do in the first two weeks of a mindfulness course you know and they discover the possibility that's implicit in finding that no two body scans are the same you know well that's something uh, worth noticing what does that open up as a possibility in my life and i just also want to echo this interwoven nature of the curiosity that chris was speaking about intention and attention when the curiosity factor is absent you tend to get a very forced attentiveness you know, an overdoing you know a over forcing you know curiosity is the ground for wise intention and wise attention and you see how these rise and fall together that when attention falls away so does intention when intention falls away so does attention and the supporting factor for the sustaining of both intention and attention is this curiosity this interest factor you know that it, it, it doesn't always come easily, but it comes through investigation and the encouragement to investigate. You know, it actually comes through finding the things that inspire us. You know, when we're inspired, we have no problem with intention and attention. So sometimes there's really this sense of how do I take care of that inspiration level, that curiosity level? How do I keep that flame really alive? Because without it, you know, you have this awful landscape of this forced attention, you know, I have to pay attention, you know, like we were shouted at in our education sometimes, you know, pay attention. I'm not the slightest bit interested, you know, so it, it's, you get this awful forced attention, which really doesn't take us to very good places. So in a few minutes time, we're actually going to break for lunch. I think we'll probably... Um, Could I just say one last thing, basically? Please do, please. Just remembering that there, there are temples in India where the spiritual practice is to keep the sacred fire burning, to keep it fueled, to keep it resourced. And I often think that's a beautiful image for this quality of curiosity in our lives, this, this sense of possibility. And that as mindfulness practitioners, and certainly as mindfulness teachers, taking care of our inspiration, making sure we're regularly in contact with that which inspires us on this path. You know, that, that is really how we keep this sacred flame of possibility alive in our lives. And just to say uh, this morning, and as we've been reflecting together and also hearing particularly the, the comments and questions of Neve and Rina, 
that line from Leonard Cohen's been in my mind. He said, he sang, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. That's how the light gets in. Just a little bit more to say on this quality of courage or virya, fearlessness. Doesn't mean that fear never arises. It doesn't mean that we don't have moments of trembling. But it's also our willingness to, to turn towards them. You know, I, I, I've met very few people whose path is just a, a kind of reliable, the linear development, a, you know, a constant deepening. For most people, their path is one of, you know, some peaks and valleys that do begin to even out. And yet we can have moments of inspiration and moments of real, you know, indifference or, or doubt. And then Viria is really what allows us to, to show up in those moments. You know, when we meet, when we meet Dukkha, it, it's such a, it's such a, it's like a crossroads moment, isn't it? When we meet that which we find difficult to bear, it's such a crossroads moment. And, you know, it's like we, could, we can go in one of two directions. And, you know, one direction we could go in is, you know, the, the surge of the veiling patterns, you know, the aversion, the doubt, the, the restlessness, the craving. But these are all moments actually when virya is so important and those crossroads moments and really developing our capacity to find some equanimity in the midst of the difficult, some sense of balance in the midst of the difficult because you will notice that the, the veiling factors are very major story generators. You know, aversion and craving and, and, and restlessness and worry and doubt, these are huge story generators. And so in those crossroads moments in our willingness to turn towards the difficult, to find the forbearance sometimes, the patience, the willingness, it's also about calming the narratives. It's about calming uh, yeah, all of those stories. And again, giving a greater authority to our intention than to our moods. In the early teachings, you know, the Buddha speaks often about swimming against the tide. You know, and I think this is so true. It's, it's against, sometimes we're swimming against the tide of our own impulses, our compulsions and habitual patterns. Sometimes we're swimming against the tide of the veiling factors. Sometimes we're swimming against the tide of societal norms, you know, that says that we should perhaps accept the unacceptable or that we are helpless. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a wonderful saying, uh, teaching that says that the essence of virya, the essence of courage, is finding joy in the undertaking of wholesome and skillful actions. Finding joy in the undertaking of wholesome and skillful intentions or cultivations. So Virya is not this kind of, you know, armored, I have to fight this. But actually to celebrate the moments, 
where we make the choice of cultivating the skillful rather than the unhelpful. Could I just, just add that, of course, this is an embodied exploration and virya is, a, is an embodied word. And we can see in our own experience, as well as in the deepening understanding of how moods, you know, the kind of neurophysiology of this, how much our moods and the patterns into which we get locked are sustained by a kind of rigidity in the body or a kind of collapse in the body. And, you know, for me, this really points to the importance of the mindful walking practice and mindful movement practices, because there are certain moods and mental states that it's really not helpful just to try to sit with, let alone to lie with, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we can feel how the energy gets depleted or gets very out of balance if we're just lying awake ruminating or we're sitting on our cushion trying to be mindful of anxiety or anger you know this isn't helpful to to the practice of virya you know walking practice is can be so helpful here because again walking emphasizes a sense of agency it gives the nervous system the message that i'm not frozen. I don't need to be frozen in this moment. I don't need just to dissociate as my only way of dealing with this. I have agency, I have ground, and I can move, you know, and, and when there has been trauma, either, you know, from shocking events or uh, early experience, developmental experience, movement can be so helpful. And it, it always feels such a gift in a mindfulness course where we get to the mindful movement practices and you know really cheering you on those of you who are teachers in in giving prominence to movement and to mindful walking in your your teaching i i more and more feel uh you know the wisdom of that the the uh early images of the buddha in the first few years after first few hundred years after his death weren't statues of him sitting meditating. They were images of his two feet. That was how he was represented. And it feels to me there's such a, a sanity in that, in the kind of groundedness, in that sense that the Buddha was somebody who walked. He walked, you know, so much in his life. If you look at the suttas and kind of try to plot his journeys, you know. And, and so really... Uh, we can see how much energy comes, how much virya and, and agency and courage and dedication can come from letting the body move, letting the body walk, letting the body really come into its strength dimension as well as its sensitivity dimension. I would very much agree. You know, I think we make use of all the four postures and these are also appropriate responses of when to sit, when to stand, when to walk, when to lie down. I know when I when I've been teaching retreats, I always use this past tense to <coughs> um, 
sometimes people would stand up in the hall during the sitting period, you know, and talk about how self-conscious they felt about doing that. And I am applauding them. I am applauding them because I am seeing here's a person who's doubtless in the midst of some dullness or dissociation or lotness, and they make that choice to stand up, you know, and that's furious. You know, swimming against a tide that says, you know, what will people think of me or I'm not doing it right to stand up and to know that this is helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.